that you would draw near to us in this way. And so we pray in the coming moments as we open your scriptures that we would hear from you clearly, that your spirit would speak and encourage and convict and continue to refine us. Help us, Lord, as we seek to submit ourselves to you, to bend our wills to your will, to refocus our thoughts to your thoughts. God, we need your help in this. We're weak, but we know that you are strong. And we ask for your strength in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's great to be with you. It's kind of one of those fun Sundays where it's a fall kickoff Sunday. And sort of one of the advantages of having transitioned through the summer is that we had sort of a kickoff Sunday in August, and now we get a kickoff Sunday in September. We'll have to figure out what we're going to do for October. You know, one of the great tensions that we have in this life consists in the contrasting poles of living for the moment and preparing for the future. There are countless expressions of the desire to live for the moment, a couple common ones that you've heard, carpe diem, seize the day, YOLO, you only live once, and the idea is clear, life is short, take opportunities that you have to enjoy it. But on the other pole, there are plenty of merits and famous quotes about preparation for the future as well. I mean, Alexander Graham Bell once said, before anything else, preparation is key to success. Benjamin Franklin said, by failing to prepare, you are preparing to fail. And Abraham Lincoln once said, I will prepare and someday I will get my chance. The vast majority of us live in this tension between living for the moment and preparing for the future. The high school student has to choose very often between having a good time with friends, enjoying recreational activities, or more intentionally focusing on those things that will prepare him or her for college. The college student has the same tension, maybe even more so. If you've been to college, you know that there's an endless number of fun things to do. And somewhere in there, you actually have to study and prepare for the career that's coming next. The young professional experiences this tension as she has her newfound income and she has to decide, do I enjoy this and spend it or do I already start to save for the future? Throughout our working lives, the idea of career advancement or personal advancement and preparing for those things is ever-present, but this is in tension with the idea of really focusing on those things in front of us that are of great importance. And even in retirement age, that time of life where you would think that things slow down and really become more about what's right in front of me, living for the moment, I've saved my whole life for this, but there's a healthy tension there for the future as well, isn't there? Because every retiree has to reckon with the fact that they're leaving a legacy for the people that are coming after them. And what kind of legacy do they want to leave? Throughout our whole lives, we live with this tension of preparing for the future or living for the moment. Or living for the moment or preparing for the future. The already and the not yet. This dynamic is clear. And for the Christian, this tension is present as well. Now, a relationship with God through faith in Jesus 
changes the way that we think about the present, and it certainly changes the way we think about the future. But where is the balance between focusing on those activities that give us immediate spiritual gratification and the focus on our future and eternal rewards and salvation? I mean, we've met people on both poles, haven't we? Some that focus so heavily just on what's happening in front of me right now, spiritually speaking. Others that are hands-off because it's all good. I'm saved someday. Heaven is my reality. And so on. And so we're left with this question. How do we navigate these two poles or between them? How do we focus our attention in a manner that honors the short term and the long term in a manner that's pleasing to God? And for this, we turn in our Bibles to Colossians chapter 3. So I want to ask you to open your Bibles with me. Colossians 3, we're continuing in our series in this book of Colossians that we're calling Supremacy. And here, in this section of text, the Apostle Paul begins to touch on this tension and what it means for us. Today we're looking at just four short verses. And I believe that we'll be encouraged as we do. Are you there? Colossians 3, page 984 of those pew Bibles. This is what it says. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ, is, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things of the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So this passage, these four short verses, function for us as sort of the bridge in the middle of this book. The first couple of chapters, we see real heavy theology. The aim is to reorient or alter our thinking about who God is and particularly focus on the supremacy of his son Jesus. The second half of the book is really heavily focused on what do we do with that reality. And here in the bridge, we find sort of a summary, a recap of some of the themes that we've been talking about for the last couple of weeks. And we begin to touch on what it means for how we live our life. So we have two points this morning. The first one is this. A defining reality for a Christian is that your life is hidden with God hidden with Christ in God. A a defining reality for a Christian is that your life, verse 3, is hidden with Christ in God. Did you notice that in this text, four short verses, but the totality of your life as a Christian is addressed in some way? The past, the present, and the future. The past... He says, for if you're a Christian, that you have died with Christ and you have been risen again or raised with Christ. This happens when you put your faith in him. The present reality for you is that your life is hidden with Christ in God. The future reality, verse 4, is found that one day Jesus will be glorified and you will share in his glory. Now think about this for a minute with me. 
Because many of us view our spiritual lives, or at least we're tempted to view our spiritual lives, in terms of our faithfulness to God, in terms of our experience of him as we go about life, in terms of that warm and fuzzy feeling that we get from time to time, in terms of whether or not I do my morning devotions this day or if I'm consistent with them this week. And those things are all very important. But what if, what if our spiritual lives were not really defined by those things? Because here we see that our spiritual lives are actually defined at the center of what it means to be a Christian. This is centered on the reality that we are united with Christ. Now throughout this book we've seen this incredible mystery. When you put your faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, he unites himself to you. It's spiritual, it's mysterious, it might even say mystical in a certain type of way. He never lets you go. And that reality of Jesus uniting himself to you, you being found in him, him being found in you, is the primary relational reality that the Apostle Paul wants us to understand in this book of Colossians. Now, let's look at a couple of the different elements of this. Verse 3 He says, you have died, meaning you've died with Christ. And what he means by this is that through faith in Jesus, your old self is dead. We're all born with a sin nature. We are enslaved to sin as a result of that nature, Romans 6 tells us. And what does it mean to be a slave? It means that you are compelled to do a lot of different things that you don't want to do. But you have to do them. Romans 6 indicates that that is us with sin. We we don't want to sin necessarily, but we can't help but sin. And as a result, we can't be pleasing to God. However, God breaks through. By his Holy Spirit, he opens our eyes. He softens our hearts. We respond to his irresistible grace by putting our faith in Christ. And when that happens, the old self dies. What this means is that you're dead. The slave is dead. No longer does sin have mastery over you. You are dead to the worldly notions of spirituality. You are dead to being enslaved by the different pressures that this life has. It doesn't mean that you won't experience some of these things. But it means you are no longer compelled. You no longer have to engage in the way that you used to. And on the flip side of dying with Christ comes the wonderful reality that you are raised with him. Look at verse 1 with me. The motivation for what Paul is telling us to do is found in the reality of verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ, then do these things. Again, rooted in the fact that united with him, we see explained over and over and over again, our old selves die, our new selves are raised to new life just as he was, and this is what it means to be born again. You know, born again Christians, really, it's really not just a political designation. Jesus says, 
You must be born again. Well, how can I be born again? The Pharisee asks. We see that this is what it means to be free from the power of sin. No longer a slave to it, but now as one who has Christ's righteous status. A calling as the sons and daughters of God. A promised inheritance of co-heirs with Jesus. Dead, alive, new life. Think about it this way with me. In India, there is the Great North Road. This runs through the Punjab in the United Provinces. And for many years, one side of this road was soft earth for the camels to walk on. And the other side of the road was hardened or paved ground for the cars to drive on. In the rainy season, the camel path became just a muddy, mucky mess. And if a man was walking to Calcutta on the muddy side of the road, another might approach him and say something like this. You know, I have an experience to share with you. If you walk on the paved side of the road, it's easier. So as the man moves out of the mud over to the paved side of the road, he cries out that his life has been changed. And he continues on his way. And another man, a spiritually minded man, comes to him and he says, I have two questions to ask you. Question number one, where were you going when you were walking in the mud? The answer, Calcutta. Question number two, and where are you going now that you're walking on the paved road? And the answer is still Calcutta. You know, there are many people who go through life and they think that they need some form of advice or personal improvement to gain a spiritual life with God. As if I take this piece of advice and now all of a sudden I have vibrant spirituality with God. But, my friends, you do not need your life to be simply changed. You need your life to be exchanged. You need an absolutely new life. And this comes only from new birth. Only then will you find yourself on a new road traveling in a new direction. And that's what it means to be united to Christ. When you put your faith in him, new birth comes. Why? Because the old Nick dies. The old slave that I was is dead. And the new life comes. And it's mirrored in Jesus' death and resurrection. And it's displayed in your baptism. And as a result, raised to new life, new position, new status, new purpose, and new direction. And one of the results of this new life we see is the direction, and it's found in verse 4. It looks at our future reality as Christians. It says, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So we talked about the past if you're a Christian. If you're not a Christian, that's not your past. That's still hopefully your future. But for the Christian, their past is death and resurrection, and now their future will be someday 
glorified with Jesus. And here we find this sort of already and not yet tension that we were talking about. Through faith, you are saved, and yet your salvation isn't complete yet. You're still being saved. You're free from sin, though you still yield to temptation to sin. But someday, someday you'll be glorified and never sin again. You've received the promises of God through faith, through your union with Jesus, but you haven't received all of them yet. There are still many more promises coming to you. And as such, I'm living in the present, and I'm living for the present, and I'm living with a great, great hope for the future. I don't know about you, but I cannot wait to see Jesus face to face. I cannot wait until the pain and the suffering of this world are gone. I can't wait until my little toddler kids stop crying <laughs> and whining. I can't wait until those things are a distant memory. I can't wait until all of those who have persecuted Christians throughout the centuries get to see all of those Christians standing side by side united with Jesus. I can't wait for all the preparation that we are doing in learning how to worship God to have that applied to the worship of God physically in the heavenly realms with us present. One of the great hope of a Christian is that we will receive future glory with Jesus. I wonder how often we think about that. I'm a car guy. I love cars. You'll probably hear me tell a number of stories about cars over the next number of years together, Lord willing. I think of one such story of a young man whose parents promised him when he turned 16 that they were going to get him a fantastic car. And this young man, enraptured with the dreams of this car, was beginning to make his plans. He even planned to park the car in the family's barn. There wasn't a spot in the garage, but they had a barn. It could stay warm and dry in there. But first, his dad had to get rid of that old car that was sitting in the barn. He couldn't wait for his dad to haul it off to the dump to make room for his dream car. But when would that day come? I mean, his birthday was fast approaching. When would the new car arrive? There needed to be a spot for it. When would Dad get rid of that junky old thing that was under the tarp in the barn? Then one evening, in the early summer, the boy heard a strange set of sounds coming from that old barn. It sounded like power tools, a drill, a hammer. What was going on, he thought. And as he looked out his window, he saw the darkened sky with the stars and this dim glow coming through those cracks in the barn door. And so he walked down the dirt path toward the barn. And as he peeked his head through the door, he saw the tarp rolled up against the wall. And he thought to himself, oh, was this going to be the day when Dad finally gets rid of that old junker and makes space for my new dream car? And as he lifted his head, he suddenly looked and saw one of the most incredible sports cars in American automotive history. 
Sorry, Ford guys. This was a Corvette. But it wasn't just any Corvette. It was the 1963 split window, 327 V8, with aluminum knockoff wheels, painted candy apple red. So that was the car underneath the tarp all of those years. He stood there, stunned. It was always there. It was just getting ready for his father's masterful work of restoration. And at that moment, his dad looked up, arms deep in the engine bay. He got a smile on his face, and he handed his son a socket wrench, and he said with a broad smile, Come on, my son. Grab a tool, and let's get this car ready. You know, it's a little picture of future glory that's waiting to be revealed. The glory that you have through your union with Jesus is glory as if right now it's under a tarp. You can't see it. You don't fully know it. You might not even fully understand it. And at times, you're probably tempted to even question it. But someday, someday, the tarp will be rolled back. Glory will be revealed for all to see. And you, as a Christian, will share in this glory. So we've talked about the past a little bit. We've talked about the future. But let's camp on the present reality for a couple of minutes. The present reality, the defining reality of your relationship with God, what you have right now through faith What is worth more to you than anything else in this world, whether you realize it or not, is, as verse 3 says, the fact that your life is hidden with Christ in God. What does that mean? And why is that important? I mean, remember who Jesus is being presented as in this book of Colossians. He is the one who is supreme over all creation. He's supreme over all the heavens and of the earth. He created all things, and as such, there is nothing outside of his view. There's nothing outside of his scope that's even possible. He is actively holding all things together. And there are no earthly, nor heavenly, nor cosmic rulers or powers or authorities that are greater than him. He is supreme over all things and in all things. And still, he decides to condescend, to sacrifice himself for humanity, to unite himself to those sinful beings like me, like you, who put their faith in him, never to let them go. And in here, here we see reconciliation with God. So pause with me for a moment. And consider this position. In Christ, you are in the most secure place you could possibly be. True safety is there. Genuine nearness to God is there. New life and eternal life is there because your life is hidden in his or with him. So to be 
hidden with him means that now you are in the most secure place you can be. Positionally, you have a new place before God. He doesn't view you the same way that he used to. He doesn't view you as the old Fred, as the old Sally, as the old John. He views you in terms of your new life. And in that new life, you have heavenly citizenship and identity. This identity is hidden in some ways but it's no less real. And it will be revealed when we appear with Christ in glory. My friends, this is the defining marker of your spiritual life. Hidden with Christ in God. Not what you do for God. Not the gifts that you have. Not the personal experiences of God that you enjoy. But simply the fact that your life is hidden with Christ in God. That's it. And so what does that mean for our present circumstances? Well, verses 1 and 2 begin to tell us. And we'll hear more next week about where to go with this. But we might summarize verses 1 and 2 this way. Because of this new position, you hidden with Christ in the heavenlies, your life wrapped up in his, refine your focus in life toward your eternal home. Refine your focus in life. And refine it toward your eternal home. Look with me at verse 1. It says, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on the things of the earth. Sort of two expressions of the same reality. They have slightly different nuances. Seek the things that are above. Set your mind on the things that are above. To seek the things that are above is a way to say, I am orienting my will toward the things of God. I'm changing the way or the reason why I do things in this life because of the things that are above. The things that are above is really just another way to say that we're seeking heaven or heavenly status. Not that we're seeking to gain heavenly status. Jesus has already given that to us. But we are to live in light of that citizenship. Here's an important thing for us to remember. Maybe an easy way to understand this reality. Christians are not citizens of earth trying to get to heaven. But Christians are citizens of heaven making their way through earth. This is referred to in a number of different places in the Bible. 1 Peter chapter 2.11 talks about Christians being foreigners and exiles in this world. Jesus prays to his Father in John 17. For those who follow him, he says, Father, they are not of this world just as I am not of this world. Christians are not citizens of earth trying to get to heaven. Because you're united with Christ, you're a citizen of heaven trying to make your way through earth. And so he says, as a result of that, how you set your will, how you act, act as one moving in that direction toward heaven. 
Likewise, set your minds on things above. Same idea, not just my actions or my will, but also my thoughts. I'm to daily orient my thoughts toward the things of heaven and not the things of earth. Now, how do we do that? I mean, that's incredibly difficult. When you start to think about the obstacles of refining our thoughts in this life. I mean, so many of us go through life with a blurred focus. It's a blurred focus from the whiplash that happens. I mean, I'm focused over here for a minute, and then I'm focused over here, and then um, that email comes in, and that's the most important thing. And then my wife calls, and then we have a meeting. And, I mean, we go through life with a blurred focus. Some of us are able to sort of push that aside and function in that reality and focus on just one or two important things. But so often the one or two things that we probably shouldn't be focusing on. I mean, what motivates us as people? What motivates you? What motivates me? What drives us? I'm driven by desire. I'm driven by fear. I'm driven by my ambition. I'm driven by selfish gain. I'm driven by insecurity. How many times do we go through our days without even giving God a passing thought? Never mind the eternal hope that we have waiting for us. How do we do this? Well, next week we'll talk more about some of the practical details of how we set our minds in this way. But for this week, let's just get used to the idea or to the challenge that because I have a new position in Christ, I can now freely think about heaven and move toward heaven and allow these things to actually motivate me. Why? Because I don't have to fear in the other areas. I'm fully secure being united to the Supreme One. The Scottish pastor Alexander McLaren asked his congregation this question. He said, did it ever occur to you, Christian, that your hope was a thing to be cultivated. That you ought to exert specific effort for that purpose. Have you ever thought about that? Get into the habit of meditating upon the object toward which your hope is directed. If you never lift your eyes to the goal, you'll never be drawn toward it. If you never think about heaven, it will not be attractional to you. Reorient your will. Shift your focus. You can do these things now because in your present circumstances you have true security. Your life is hidden with Christ and God. And this life is moving toward a day when you will share in his glory. And because of this, Paul says, refine your focus toward your future home. How do you manage to live between the poles? The poles of living life for the moment, the poles of preparing for the future. Paul says, as a result of your new position in Christ, refine your focus toward your future home. And you will see, and we'll talk more about it next week, as you do that, how the present realities of life with God become all the more rich. You may have heard the story of Theodore Roosevelt when he was president of the United States, went to Africa 
on a hunting safari. Probably wouldn't be a great idea for our presidents today in light of recent events. But as he was coming back to the United States, a missionary who was retiring after 40 years of service in a jungle village was traveling on the same vessel. And when the ship docked, cheering throngs of people greeted this missionary. Not this missionary, excuse me, greeted the president. And as the missionary observed this, he momentarily had some self-pity. And he thought to himself, the president of the United States goes on a short hunting trip to Africa. And hundreds of people come to greet him. But Lord, a missionary, devotes his entire life to serving you on the foreign field, and not one person is at the dock to greet him. And it was if God whispered in the man's ear immediately, but my son, you are not home yet. It is so easy to lose sight of the final destination. But the reminder for today is due to your position in Christ, refine your focus toward your future home. Let's pray together and ask for God's help in this that sounds very simple, but in reality we know it's very difficult. Father God, may I perish to myself that I may be safe in you. May I die to myself that I may live in you. May I wither to myself that I may blossom in you. And God, may I be nothing to myself that I may be all in you. this morning we have the opportunity to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. And as we turn our attention to the communion table, we remember that the celebration of the Lord's Supper is something that Christians have done for centuries. Jesus himself instituted this as a remembrance of his sacrifice for us. And in light of what we've been talking about in the book of Colossians with our union with Christ, this mysterious reality of us in Christ and he in us, united, never to let us go. Did you ever consider why Jesus chose to have us remember his death and resurrection in terms of bread and wine? Things that we consume, food items that become a part of us. Could it be another allusion to our union with Christ, Jesus in us, us found in him as we eat the symbol of his body and we drink the symbol of his blood and it becomes a part of us? I think that it is. And so as you prepare yourself for the Lord's Supper today, a couple of reminders for you. Number one, this is a celebration for those who have put their faith in Christ. 
And if you haven't yet done that, then I would encourage a couple of things of you. I'd use this time to consider your current relationship with God and why you haven't yet put your faith in Christ. And if you're willing to, if you desire the things that we're talking about today, future glorification with Jesus, a new life that's found in God, true security for the very first time, if these things are something you desire, God gives it to you freely through the sacrifice of his son. What he asks of you is that you confess your sins and put your faith in him. And if you want to do that for the very first time today, then by all means, please take the Lord's Supper and let it be a sign of your faith and celebration of new life in you. For those of you that have put your faith in Christ for some time, we come to this time and we remember the central point of our existence, Jesus crucified, died, and buried to forgive us of our sins. And as the ushers come and as they pass the elements, I would encourage you to take a moment to confess to God any unrepentant sin that you have and to give thanks to God for what he has done in your life. Please pray with me. Father, your son, the perfect sacrifice, the supreme one in all things. Today we celebrate his life, his death, his resurrection for the forgiveness of sins. And in doing so, we proclaim this reality until he comes again until we experience glory with him, until his kingdom is fully consummated among us. We live in hope and anticipation for that day that is coming. And for today, God, we are grateful for the forgiveness that you offer. So we take these things now in honor and of him and in glory to you. Amen. As the ushers pass, please hold the bread and the cup and we'll take them together. <laughs>